So today we're going to be going through Esther chapter 4. Remember, up until this point, we've, uh, we're still in Persia, as we're going to be throughout the entire book. Last week, we saw how Mordecai discovered a plot to assassinate the king. Um, and then instead of Mordecai getting a promotion like most people in the Persian court did for these tremendous acts of loyalty to the, to the king... In the very next verse, we see Mordecai's rival, the enemy of the Jews, Haman, actually getting a promotion to be in the inner court of the king. And then Mordecai refuses to bow to Haman. We don't really know why, but he nevertheless refuses to bow to Haman not just once but multiple times. Uh, enrages Haman, who we're introduced to as Haman the Agagite. Kind of dove into that a little bit, how... Um, Agag was a king of the Amalekites who were perpetual enemies of the, the Israelites and the, the Jewish people. We developed that just a little bit. We heard about Haman's plan to annihilate all the Jews, not just in Susa in this city, but all throughout Persia. And remember, Persia at this point includes the, the Canaan area and the Promised Land and the Temple in Jerusalem. And so here we are at this point. There's going to be a lot of mourning in this, in this chapter. There's even going to be some hints of religion, which we have not seen. Today we're going to see these hints of religion. And these are going to be the only hints of religion in the entire book. Even though Yahweh won't be worshipped, appealed to, or even mentioned, we're going to get a couple of at least tiny implicit hints that maybe Esther and Mordecai have some semblance of a belief in God. We're going to encounter perhaps one of the most inspiring rhetorical questions in all of the Old Testament. Mordecai is going to ask Esther. In this interrogative from Mordecai, he provokes even Christians today to examine what they are doing to build up the church. It's a clear message that that human responsibility and divine providence go hand in hand. They are not exclusive at all. But before we get to the text, remember what our theme is throughout this entire study. We have this particular section of God's word. It is a display of divine providence, even though God is not mentioned. The Jews all across the Persian Empire at risk of annihilation now, all of them. Just like because of the sins of Saul, because of the sins of Jehoshaphat's son Jehoram, because of the sins of his son Ahaziah, the line of David from which the Messiah must come hangs by a thread. So, let's read chapter 4 and see how God in his divine providence and... Mordecai and Esther, in their human responsibility, are going to act to preserve the Jews. Esther chapter 4, verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. 
Hothak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to them and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg for his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hothak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said, Then Esther spoke to Hothik and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I've not been called to come to the king these thirty days. And they told Mordecai what Esther said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. So after the events of chapter 3, along with all the other Jews in Persia, Mordecai goes into this period of, of deep mourning. He sits at the, the entrance of the king's gate, right up against the, the palace entrance, he sits there in sackcloth and ashes. I see out throughout the Near East, I'm sure you all know this, that's a, a display of mourning, of deep mourning, sackcloth and ashes. He sits there for at least a long enough period of time so that, that Esther takes notice. We don't know the exact number of days or hours that he was there, but Esther does take notice. And she sends him a gar- garments to put on, which, which he refuses. She's, she's probably wondering what's, what's going on with her uncle because she really doesn't seem to know at this point any, the, uh, the decree of the king. She's, she's ignorant of this genocidal decree because she, she doesn't really seem to know anything about it and is wondering why Mordecai is acting this way, why he's lamenting so deeply right now. Mordecai has to go and actually informs her eunuch, Hothik, who then informs Esther that the Jews are going to be destroyed. Esther doesn't seem to know about it. Esther then kind of just throws her hands up in the air in just desperation, claiming that, that her hands are tied and that there's really nothing she can do about this. Everyone in the kingdom knows that if anyone comes before the king without being summoned, he or she are, is going to be immediately executed unless the king holds out the golden scepter. Actually, Herodotus confirms this. He tells us that in Persia, the king's seven closest advisors, which we had talked about a little bit before, this was kind of carried over from their, the previous kingdom called the Medes. They had this, um, this understood rule that the king's seven closest advisors had unrestricted access to him, unless he was with a woman. If he was with a woman, nobody could access him. But his seven closest advisors could always have unrestricted access to him, and anyone else in the kingdom had to be summoned. Anyone else. Or death. Immediate death. The only exception was if the king capriciously decides to extend his golden scepter when the person enters the king's room, thus signaling to the bodyguards to put down their weapon. If he doesn't extend the scepter, the bodyguards immediately kill whoever comes in the room. 
Apparently for Esther, the honeymoon is over. Remember, this has been about five years since their, their marriage. And because we're told it's been at least 30 days since Xerxes has summoned Esther into, into his presence. And she will face immediate death if she enters the king's presence and he does not extend this golden scepter. So we're even given some sort of hints right now that Xerxes seems to be getting a little, maybe a little tired of Esther. It's been at least 30 days since they've seen each other. I know if I go you know, more than one day without seeing my wife, I kind of feel kind of bad. I imagine 30 days of it. But uh, you know, this is the life of a, a king with hundreds of concubines, I suppose. Anyway, Mordecai presses upon Esther that she's not likely to escape the fate of Haman's edict that was approved by the king. Some people think, I don't hold this view, but some people think Mordecai is actually threatening Esther right here, saying that, um, you know, if you, if you don't do this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this matter into my own hands, and you're probably going to be collateral damage from this, too. I, I, don't, I don't get that, but some commentators, even, you know, respectful commentators, they think that. But he's, he's saying that Esther's not going to escape the king's edict. Because she's a Jew, he might be even threatening to, to out her. Because it seems that even in this case, nobody knows that Esther's a Jew. And then we finally actually get a few, a few hints of faith in verses 14 and 16 of chapter 4. Verse 14, it says, For if you keep silent, this is Mordecai talking, If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. So maybe Mordecai here is hinting that he does believe that, that God is going to deliver the Jews from some other place. Some other place. At least we finally have some sort of hint of religion here. Some sort of hint of faith. And then over in, in verse, verse 16, Esther responds by, by calling for a complete and total fast for the Jews, at least in Susa. Not in the entire kingdom, but the Jews in Susa. Esther has called for a fast. No eating or drinking, which is actually rare for a fast. Most fasts were just no eating. Um, no drinking for three days. No eating or drinking for three days for all the Jews. And even though, even though prayer is actually not mentioned here, in pretty much every other place in Scripture, fasting is usually accompanied by prayer. So maybe we're getting some sort of hint that God's people are actually crying out to him for deliverance during this time of fasting. Can't be 100% sure because the text doesn't give us that. But usually prayer accompanies fasting and crying out to God. So maybe, maybe here we're, we're finally seeing Esther, um, you know, have some hint of the Jewish religion. And then finally, Esther declares her intent to risk her life to save her people. If she perishes, she perishes. But now she's going to act. And so interestingly... The Hebrew phrase in Esther 4.3 that the ESV at least translates um, there at the end of verse 3 of chapter 4, the ESV translates it with fasting and weeping and lamenting. Yes, with fasting and weeping and lamenting. This exact phrase in this exact order actually only occurs one other place in Scripture. Uh, the individual words themselves and combinations, they're in other places. But the words in this order are only found elsewhere in Joel. Joel chapter 2, verse 12, which the ESV translates uh, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. So in Esther, the same phrase is, is with fasting and weeping and lamenting. 
and Joel, it's with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Now, uh, I, to be honest, I've never done a lot of study on the, the uh, book of Joel, the prophecy of Joel. Uh, you know, how I might have, how's our, our Old Testament scholar. But uh, most, uh, I imagine most of us in here really haven't really studied Joel really that in depth. But Joel is a, he's a minor prophet, and he's all about warnings and repentance. The first two chapters of Joel, Joel's only three chapters? Joel is three chapters. Yeah, three chapters. The first two chapters are warnings and repentance to the Jews. The last chapter is a warning and a call to repentance for the nations other than the Jews. But, um, so Joel is, he's all about warnings and repentance, the first two chapters warn the God's people that the day of the Lord is coming. Uh, Joel has a lot of kind of end times imagery in it. Uh, Peter even quotes it in some of in his sermons on at Pentecost, um, and then uh, it's quoted in Revelation two, uh, not Revelation chapter two, Revelations also. And so he warns Joel warns that the the day of the Lord is coming, and he is send destru- he's going to send destruction by locusts, by fire, by earthquakes, by darkness, all amongst other things. And even in this case, the Jews are going to be destroyed. But there is hope if they repent. So in Joel chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, this is what it says. Yet even now, declares the Lord. Remember, he's talking to Israel. He's talking to the Jews right now. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. And rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Connection. Call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even the nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why would they say among the people, Where is their God? So the Jews in Esther's time, they were more than likely aware of the writings of Joel. Joel was most likely written sometime in the Babylonian exile. And so the Jews there, remember, were after the Babylonian exile in Esther. So they were likely probably aware of the writings of Joel. And so this is probably more than just a coincidence that we read the the same Hebrew phrase in the beginning of the chapter, followed by a fast, something else that Joel calls for at the end of the chapter. And so I, I can't help but think and hope that there was some sort of repentance um, accompanied, accompanied by the fast that Esther prescribes. Um, just kind of a, an interesting note there. I, I hope and I think there probably is some sort of repentance. And so uh, an application for us today is, you know, even as God's people today, we have a duty to be constantly in repentance for our sins and to rend our hearts and not our garments and further, also, this kind of seems to be kind of a, a turning point for Esther and her relationship to God's covenant people. Up to this point, she seems to have embraced the luxurious pagan lifestyle in the house of the king. She's been there for at least five years at this point, and she is still hiding the fact that she is a Jew. She's still enjoying the feasts. She's still 
really likes to be served by the royal eunuchs. And this proposed destruction of her people now brings her life to a crossroads. With the destruction of her people at hand, is she going to continue to live as a pagan or is she going to live as a member of God's covenant community? She finally becomes intentional, transforms into a meaningful and useful member of God's people. And we today, as Christians, face the same choice almost daily. Do we identify more with the things of this world or do we identify with the church? Are we more concerned with living according to the precepts of our God or are we more concerned with the comforts, comfort, comforts and conveniences of modernity? I know which way that I hope I lean. I fail more, more often than, than I can say. I hope that we all agree that we should be on our spiritual guard to ensure that we do not grieve our Savior by embracing the things of the world and forsaking his kingdom. For his rest far exceeds anything that the world can offer us. This is a turning point for Esther. I hope that we all realize that God's rest far exceeds any kind of comforts or conveniences that we receive in our Persia this day. And so that brings me to a few points of, of application for us today, kind of drawing out some of the things that we see in this chapter. First of all, at the beginning of the chapter, we see a lot of, of mourning and lamenting. We see it from Mordecai. He is lying in, in sackcloth and ashes at the king's gate. And we're even we're told in, in chapter 3, and in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, so wherever the Jews heard this, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, many of them laying in sackcloth and ashes. So there's mourning all throughout the kingdom. There's mourning over the brothers and the sisters that are being persecuted, over the Jews, of the destruction of the Jews that are coming. Mordecai, Esther, and even all the Jews throughout the kingdom into, enter into this period of deep mourning. And then they're still in this period of mourning at the end when the Jews of Susa enter into their period of fasting. This fasting is accompanied by mourning. And this should serve as an example for us today. Each and every day, the body of Christ is going through the lashes of persecution. We have largely been shielded from this in America, but that should not keep us from our own sackcloth and ashes when we know that our family is suffering for the sake of Christ. It is shameful that we are enjoying the comforts of Susa while the Hamans of our time are plotting the death of the saints. It's shameful for me. We, even as Christians, united as brothers and sisters in Christ, should mourn. We should grieve deeply when members of our family are persecuted. We should mourn when the, the Chinese Communist Party bulldozes church buildings. We should mourn when Boko Haram kidnaps children, Christian girls and puts others to death in Nigeria. We should mourn when brothers and sisters are jailed for simply sharing the gospel in Brunei or North Korea or Saudi Arabia. We should mourn when a, a pastor in Canada, Canada of all places, from the same province, same province as our brother Dirk, not here this morning, same province where Dirk is from, is jailed right now for holding a church service. And one of the conditions of his release is that he no longer preaches. We should mourn that when the body hurts, for we are members of that same body. So please, brothers and sisters, remember to pray for the persecuted church. I know this is an indictment against me. I never pray for them, ever. I need to do better and remember my brothers and sisters in chains. We all do. Then moving on to the, the next point of application. This is Esther and Mordecai. They display a, an active faith, not a passive faith. 
Esther, she displays wisdom in, in listening to the wise counsel of her elder Mordecai. She also wisely proclaims and participates in a fast. A fast. She risks her life for the church. Remember, the church is God's Israel. Likewise with us in our time, knowing the will of God requires this same multi-pronged approach of, of listening to wise people, especially our, our parents, well-established older Christians, and our pastors and elders. We must know God's word that is declared in Scripture, seek him in humble prayer and fasting, and be prepared to obey him at any cost. If we perish, we perish. Confidence in God's providence does not allow us to be passive, brothers and sisters, to kick up our feet and to wait on God to put his plans in motion without us. This is not what the scriptures call for. Jesus commissioned his church to work. Mordecai was, was energized to call Esther to act decisively for her people. He knew she was in a position to do so, so he calls her to act. Esther was quick to call a fast of God's people. Almost immediately she calls for this fast and decides immediately that she will go before the king to risk her life, boldly declaring, if I perish, I perish. If only we, and I'm emphatically including myself here because I'm passive, I'm a very naturally passive and lackadaisical person, I guess. If we were this quick to come to the defense of the church, if only we were. We were shaken from our complacency into bold action on behalf of God's people. Believing that God is in control never excuses us from any of our positions or our abilities that God has gifted us with for the use, for the good of his people. Instead, it gives us hope. It gives us hope that, that God has put us here, has brought us to the kingdom for his purposes, for his king, to his kingdom for such a time as this. We're here for a purpose. We're here for a directed and divine purpose, but a purpose that requires us to use our positions and our gifts to act. And we can be assured that God will ensure our eternal success if we are working towards his causes. The world may not understand it. The world may see that the Christians are put to death and most likely rejoices at that. But God knows that we are going to have eternal success because we are working towards his kingdom. Mordecai gives a very aggressive rhetorical question to, eth- to Esther. And to me, this is the fulcrum of the entire book. This is what the whole book stands on right here. This serves to inspire Esther, it takes to take up her human responsibility. And this should inspire all of God's people to serve the church in both dramatic and trivial ways alike. And I put trivial in quotation marks here. There are no trivial ways to serve the church. Who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Just like Mordecai declares to Esther, this is what I declare to you on this day. Who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. This is God's kingdom. This is his church. We are here to serve the church. And then the last point of application. And this is a big one. Unlike the Persians, we have access to a throne. This is great and good news, a great and good comfort to Christians everywhere. We have access to a throne. Esther, she's the queen. She's the queen of Persia. She is the king's own wife. She had to have an explicit invocation, invitation to even come into his presence. Even to enter into his presence, she had to have an invitation. 
the Jews of the Old Testament. They only had access to the mercy seat of God through one high priest, and even then only on one day of the year, to the actual mercy seat. Sure, they could go to God in prayer, but to have actual access into the full presence of God one day a year by one person. The Roman Catholic Church requires you to requires its congregants to go through a priest to get to God. We all agree this is completely unbiblical, right? But like Hebrews chapter 4 states, we through our union with Christ have direct access to the throne of God, and I would quote it, but I don't have it memorized. So I'm going to turn it there because it is such a wonderfully glorious passage. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Before this, the, the author of Hebrews, you know, obviously this is written to the Hebrews. Tells in chapter 3 and in the most, most of chapter 4 tells us how Jesus is, is greater than Moses and how we can enter into the rest of Jesus. Then in verse 14 of chapter 4 it says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in the time, find grace to help in time of need. Xerxes' own bride could not approach him. We, though, the bride of Christ, are forever free to approach our bridegroom. Forever free. As Matthew Henry says when commenting on Esther chapter 4, it was bad for the subjects, for what, could, what good they had of a king that they might never have liberty to apply for the redress of grievances and appeal. It is not thus in the court of the king of kings. To the footstool of his throne of grace we may come at any time and boldly and may be sure of an answer of peace to the prayer of faith. We are welcome not only in the inner court, but even into the holy of holies through the blood of Jesus. We have it much better than the Jews of the Old Testament have. We have direct access to the throne of God. Another well-known Puritan, Thomas Watson, has a a well-known quote about approaching our Heavenly Father's throne. In his work, a bit of a long title here, but this is the title of the work, The Christian Soldier, or Heaven Taken by Storm, Showing the Holy Violence a Christian is to Put Forth in the Pursuit After Glory. I love those Puritan titles, right? Yeah. He says in that work, Jesus Christ went more willingly to the cross than we do to the throne of grace. That's true. That's so true, right? But actually, so in my research for this lesson, the entire context of the quote is even more interesting and even more applicable to our lesson today. So here's the full passage from Watson's work. And I'm going to close with this. What absolute need there is to stir up ourselves to holy duties... In respect of the sluggishness of our hearts to that which is spiritual, blunt tools need wetting. A dull creature needs spurs. Our hearts are dull and heavy in the things of God. Therefore, we had need spur them on and provoke them to that which is good. The flesh hinders from duty. When we pray, the flesh resists. When we should suffer, the flesh draws back. 
how hard it is sometimes to get leave of our hearts to seek God. Jesus Christ went more willingly to the cross than we do to the throne of grace. Had we not, had not we need then provoke ourselves to duty. If our hearts are so unstrung in religion, we had need prepare and put them in tune. In other words, Watson is saying that Christians have the duty to act. Human responsibility and divine providence go hand in hand. They are not exclusive, brothers and sisters. The church is still to be fully built in anticipation for our king's return. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And with that, I close.